Greetings and salutations. You are listening to the Into the North podcast, where we take a look at the competitive side of the Commander format, also known as CDH. I am one of your hosts, Reed, aka Sick Robot, and today I am joined by my co-host Matt, aka Null. Yo yo. And Morgan, aka Spleenface. How's it going? Uh, unfortunately, we could not have Lyndon. He is still dealing with the hell that is fourth year engineering. <laughs> dealing. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, so he will not be here for this episode, but I believe we should be getting him back for the next. So keep your ears out for that one. Um, but anyway, in this episode, we're going to be covering the age old topic of moving from 60 cards to cdh and what that looks like and what the differences between the two types of formats are um but before that you guys been up to anything this past episode oh man just uh, shitting on linden for the entire two weeks it's, yeah <laughs> in private Pretty yeah. Much, yeah. wondering <laughs> where he was yeah get him while he's defenseless right yep Morgan, I know you've been taking advantage of the what vintage super draft. Super, oh yeah, super been, cube. Been jamming the supreme draft. Yeah, and yeah that cube. one screenshot of like the double the double lotus five mocks. Like, geez. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've not bad. I mean, honestly, so many of your decks wind up like that because it's like you take you open eighteen packs, you take two picks from each pack, so. And they're all like, full packs. They're all full yeah, packs. True, yeah, exactly. True, yeah. So so like I I think like if you if you count Soul Ring as power, I th- I don't think like so Soul Ring and Crypt are basically power in the cube. Like in terms of the fast mana, I, I think I drafted one deck that had like four of like Mox and Crypt Soul Ring Lotus, and then everything else has had more than that. Things, things get silly. I, mean, also, I, definitely, I definitely watched Hall, you draft. Oh, yes, Hall Preacher. Yeah, incredible Hall Preacher is an incredible card. <laughs> when people that. are playing, a, like, <laughs> Ancestral Recall. Yeah. <laughs> um, I also, uh, yeah, I, I did watch you draft a deck with four Mox Rubies in it. <laughs> yeah. So, fun. That time I got Maelstrom Pulse didn't feel good, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's... That actually Maelstrom Pulse yeah. my Mox Rubies. I was like... That's pretty devastating. Know? value uh, I, yeah <laughs> anyway I also, I also played a game where six ancestral recalls were cast <laughs> amazing <laughs> anyway moving on uh moving on through housekeeping new developments um we only really got one here which is that uh the decklist database got an update fairly recently um we've actually been working on this one pretty hard uh we brought on so we did a whole bunch of changes so and it took like three months four months but we brought on a bunch of new reviewers whose job it is to go through and get preemptive reviews and all that stuff and help us lighten the, real, the load because there were like 200 decks this review cycle. Um, so that definitely helped. We got that program set up. Um, we also established a new part of the website called the Brewer's Corner. Um, so this is for like new lists that might not normally make it onto the database but deserve some attention. Um, so... Hmm. This is even more licensed to submit your jank ass brews and just hope. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it'll be a it'll be like a rotating part of the website where we'll put um, new stuff like uh, what like Clark and Sakashima and decks like that. Yeah, um, so that people can check them out so that you know people people want to see the new brews, but maybe they're not necessarily right for the database at any given point in time. So 
it's the place to check that kind of stuff out. Um, and then, yeah, I think the next review cycle will be in the beginning of February. So if you want to get any of your new submissions in, try to submit before then. See if they get on. Nice. And moving on to the topic at hand. Again, reiterating basically the differences between 60 card formats and CDH because we know that there are differences, but like it's sort of hard to codify them, codify them um, in some way. Like it's, it's hard to like get like the actual base reasons for differences, right? Well, there are a couple more players. <laughs> In fact, there are exactly a couple more players. <laughs> um, so first topic we have here as a major difference that we sort of wanted to cover is sort of the differences in how combat damage and damage in general work in the two formats, right? Yeah, you're yeah, not seeing your typical cards like Tarmogoyf going in and being viable win conditions uh, in this format. <laughs> Unfortunately enough. I mean, I I personally would love to run Tarmogoyf in a valid CDH deck, but <laughs> it just is not to be. Yeah, it uh, it's definitely one of those things where, I mean, people always say, you know, it's irrelevant. And it's not irrelevant, but it generally isn't how games are decided. And so... Certainly that, I mean, that obviously changes how you evaluate creatures in particular, um, but it also uh, has a bunch of knock-on effects that sort of weave in with a bunch of other things we're talking about, um, particularly, you know, with regards to, to things like win cons and, and pressure, so... Uh, yeah, um, I definitely would say that, like, it's... And just to give background behind this for anybody that's not familiar with CDH rules, I'm, although, I mean, you're listening to our podcast, so I don't know <laughs> how you got here. Thanks for listening, I guess, but I don't know how you got here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, uh, so, like, the whole thing with CDH is, like... So, there, there is the, the rule that all players start with 40 life, which... In a 1v1 format, if, like, that would already sort of rule out combat damage, right? Like, if you were playing a 1v1 format where both players started with 40 life, like, you already would start to see, like, a decline of, like, the beatdown and aggro and stuff. Like, it's a lot harder to kill one other person from 40 life. Wait, you're saying Lava Spike <laughs> isn't good when... <laughs> when it, instead of doing 3 damage, it does 1.5 damage? <laughs> um, but, like, even... Even setting aside the life total changes, right? Um, if we even if everybody was at twenty life, um, and it was four player, that's still like you have to deal with like three times the the total life, right? If you want to kill the table for yeah. combat damage, and I'm not saying that like it wouldn't have an effect to decrease life totals in CDH. Like I'm sure if everybody had twenty life, maybe we would see some damage decks. But even then, like you just have to understand that. You still have to, in order to win through combat damage, kill three players rather than one. So you're basically multiplying the starting life total by three in the amount of damage that you have to push through to win the game. Yeah, and it's also because of, like, because its damage is fundamentally just about numbers, it's a lot harder for them to design cards for Commander that put out reasonable amounts of damage pressure without them being absolutely broken in half in... 1v1 formats right because you need yeah. to deal like you're you're trying to the equivalent of say like you know i brought up lava spike in 
in like a, a modern burn deck, three damage at 20 life. Basically, the equivalent of that is like six damage to each of three people for one mana. Yeah. It would be like the same quote unquote and rate, it, like, proportional <laughs> to the life total you have yeah. to deal with, which is, I mean, <laughs> yeah. One yeah, mana, you, you 18 just, damage. You just can't, nice you format. Can't, you can't even print that card, even if it's like, oh, deal it to like one of each like opponent yeah, in one no. one because it's still you have to deal six damage. You can only you effectively restrict it to commander by having like to, you can only really equal to your number of opponents times each opponent. Yeah, each exactly. opponent. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just yeah, it, it, like it's just the the space for printing like EDH appropriate damage dealers into existence at all is just like it's such a niche and like you have to put in so much work to get the wording correct so that it's not broken in 1v1 formats that like we're just not likely to ever see it unless it's on like specifically a commander um that doesn't necessarily work in 1v1 um yeah i don't know what that looks like i mean like tor brand might be a thing but i don't know It, it would have to like in my opinion it would have to be like a commander that doubles damage and then also copies spells targeting opponents or something like that like but like yeah. you just if you wanted to play burn yeah much, like you just have you to need. like you have to think about like just think about like how much text that commander has to have in order to make burn viable to <laughs> just CDH, provide right? this like tiny niche which just yeah. seems like also like not good for a set to have a card like that yeah no not at all <laughs> um but yeah, anyway, so like that's that's one of the core differences um, that really like under underlies like a lot of differences in like how the formats evolve and like all of these like different decisions that you have to start making between 60 card and um, CDH or EDH in general is like the damage is just the the amount of damage that you can do per card is just fundamentally different as like a percentage of life totals that you have to really start reevaluating like what stats are valuable on creatures how much damage like a card has to do in order to be relevant and also like you start losing a lot of the density of these damage dealing effects so that like you can't really like even if even if there was like one card that was like a lava spike like even like if there was like one card that did like 18 damage to each opponent you still just like don't have the density to kill people right yeah you can't you can't make your deck like 60% cards that take off you know 15% of your opponents life total yeah like there there just aren't that many cards to fill in you need you'd need like a much deeper just six you know i mean the equivalent would be basically you'd need six lightning bolts ish in a 100 card deck and you're only allowed to play one i mean that's actually sort of i think that's a good it's a good topic to pivot to even though uh, i guess we don't have this in show notes but i just realized now that it's something that we need to talk about and sort of more in depth is like it's because it's a singleton format in comparison to 60 card formats where you can play four of whatever you want um in 60 card formats it's relatively very easy to achieve a density of effects that you want for any given strategy um obviously burn has a lot of options but even for relatively niche effects like devoted druid combo in modern where devoted druid is like the only card that works with vizier and vizier is like the only card that works to make infinite mana with devoted druid you can still like you can play four of each tutor for them. You can play four of each of the combo effects. Whereas in like EDH, it's both a larger deck size, so it's more diluted, and you can only play one of each of those effects. So it's like 
you have all these effects that have only been printed once that you really want to find, but you can only play one of them in your larger deck, right? Which is like sort of base at its core changes how you have to build EDH decks and CDH decks. Yeah, you're incentivized to play these tutors that have a wider reach, so you're not stuck with these dead cards. Um, you know, in the case that you've expended, for instance, your only fastest oracle. Um, yeah, yeah, and I think I think that provides like a good sort of transition into like the next the next thing, particularly with like card relevancy um, and card exchanges. So, like, one of the big things is that you know when there when there is this like when you can't really kill with combat damage which is like the traditional way of of actually finishing a game um even you know control decks often it's like you know celestial colonnade or something like that um when that's off the table people start going for combos um which changes essentially like which cards in a deck matter um and like if you look at most if you look at most CDH decks, there's a huge number of cards in them that almost never merit any form of interaction. And like, yeah. And like these, I think these are like cards that in 60 card, you would just call air, right. For like tempo or combo decks where like, it's like the cantrips that you would see in a Delver deck or like some of the tutors or stuff that you'd see in, um, like, stuff like uh storm and modern or stuff like that right like it's like yeah but i guess honestly i don't even know if they have a, a an equivalent in the same way sure in in 1v1 formats like i mean i, th I think the closest equivalent in 1v1 formats are cantrips right yeah i think well, it, 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 speaks like to, it speaks to reed's point earlier where you can't rely necessarily on card advantage you need these these tutors to get the the availability that you'd like so it's just like it's the the, it's the card quality availability, I guess. Yeah, I guess sure. Cantrips isn't isn't like a terrible analogy. It, it's not a perfect I mean, analogy, I'll, I'll admit. But like, it's yeah. it's like the closest you can get in like a sixty card format. Yeah, where it's like okay, you're rarely you're rarely looking to interact with this because you're trying to hit like whatever the few you know really important cards is. It's like oh, that's their engine, or oh, that's like. You know, even if you look at something like like burn, you know, generally you wouldn't want to counter a burn spell versus like an Eidolon of the Great Revel or yeah. so something like that, where it's like, okay, this is good. This represents, you know, a lot of advantage or like a lot of damage over time as opposed to like sort of a one off that individually doesn't matter a huge amount. Yeah. And, you know, in CDH, this is like, I mean, this a huge amount of this is just the mana, right? Like. No one's ever going to counter your Lenoir Elves, or, like, almost never. Yeah, and, like, and that's the whole thing as well, is that, like, there's there's such a higher ratio of mana in CDH than you would see in a lot of other formats, right? Just because it's really hard to play... Again, this, this comes back to, like, good card density, right? Or an effect density, is it's really hard to play a deck full of... Like, a 100-card singleton deck full of really impactful one-mana cards, right? Like if you look at like a deck, if you look at like a deck, um, like, uh, Legacy Delver, like the CMCs tend to be very low, and you tend to have a lot of one CMC cards and like only a few two CMC or even three CMC cards. I mean, now it's different because four mana 
like a four color delver is a thing and it's based everything's check pile now but like traditional like blue red delver or something along those lines tends to like lie very very low on the cmc curve um whereas in cdh it's just not possible because there just aren't that many good one mana cards so you're sort of forced to play ramp in order to get up to your more expensive like impactful effects faster than just having to make land drops right yeah yeah absolutely which also which is like then you know we we are talking in part about card exchanges here which is then um part of the reason that you know things like two for ones that are talked about in sort of traditional magic like oh uh you know Colgon's command like oh i two for one to my opponent um one of the reasons they're often not the greatest is that at least one of the things you're hitting is usually unimportant. Um, like, you know, one of the big things, I think a, a good example of this is um, Force of Vigor, which, yes, is technically a two for two because you're often exiling your green card to cast it. But, you know, that's definitely not this. Force of Vigor is definitely not the same as like two nature's claims that you can cast at different times, right? It's yeah. like, oh, I'll hit like Smothering Tithe great that like warrants a nature's claim and then you know while i'm here like arcane signet or something while i'm here i'll take your your mox diamond or your soul ring or arcane signet or whatever like but it's just sort of you know it's sort of just like like, yeah it's it's sort of just like a a, uh a factor of just like how games work and like it's very unlikely that you'll have two very impactful things on the board at any given time because like either (laughs) <laughs> one of them will have been countered or have been removed before you got to cast the two for one dude don't forget stolen <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah also <laughs> but it's also just like yeah like even then the exchange rate isn't particularly great right yeah it's it's certainly certainly a lot of the a lot of the like the incidental value you get is actually much less valuable than a card like the way you would count a card in a 1v1 format yeah um and then obviously the other reason that card exchange math doesn't work out the same is that you have three opponents not one so if you for example two for one each of your opponents once uh they will all have one more card left than you and so Again, these these cards like a like a Coligan's command, you know, where in in modern it's like, oh, you know, I got back I got back a threat that it, that they had answered, and like I either answered one of their threats or like made them discard some relevant card, um, so now I'm like way up. If you do that in CDH, you're up against one person, and you're basically even against the other two assuming you return something to your hand and and if you don't if you destroy two things let's say one from each of two players uh you're now effectively down you're down versus the one person you didn't interact with and even with the two people you did interact in fact you're down on mana against the two people that you didn't interact with because you spent this thing interacting with somebody else. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And like and, you're you're also yeah. like the opportunity cost of like now you have spent your answer and you don't have this answer for something else. Like it's just the the card economy just is it gets very wonky when there's multiple other players involved. 
And it's not even like I think the issue also that people have coming over is you can't even say that it like you just divide how good this card is by three because there are three opponents now. Like it's not like a K command is now instead of being a two for one, it's a like two thirds for one because like the way that card like the way that like card advantage and card efficiency scales is just like non-linear just because of like other stuff in the format, right? Like being down mana, being down the opportunity cost, it's not as simple as just like again, like dividing yeah. into three. And like and, if, yeah, there's obviously there's obviously like threat assessment as well, right? Yeah. Maybe if you're so, always yeah. casting your removal spells on the player's turn before yours, like maybe. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> but that's but just like, so rarely the case. Like what would you what would you what situation would you rather be in? You know, you're playing legacy and you have zero cards in hand and your opponent has three or four. Or you're playing CDH and you have zero cards in hand and each of your opponents has three or four. <laughs> like in legacy, you know, you've lost. Yeah. It's like just pack up and go. But like obviously assuming you're not ahead on board or you know, have some reason that you have zero cards in hand. Like assuming you have sort of a relatively even game state and they're just up three or four cards in hand, you've lost. Yeah. But like in this situation, it's like, okay, you have a relatively even game state and your opponents have like 10 more cards than you do. So like, haven't you lost even harder, but you don't have any cards. So their cards are going to be pointed at each other, not at you. Yeah. And so then, you know, like, you might you might think that okay well going one for one is essentially like going one third for one because you're down against two people and then the corollary of that is that drawing cards is essentially three times as good but like i think that's i think that's actually more obviously wrong yeah that's also a trap like yeah oh i cast a divination that means i'm up one card against each of three opponents which like I think that, you know, you can obviously only spend that card on one opponent, right? Unless you're winning the game, but yeah. From well, like, sure, but from I mean, like, like a trading, yeah, from a trading yeah, perspective. When you, go yeah. up, when you go up against your opponents, that, that's not, you're up, you know, you have one more card in hand than each of your opponents. That doesn't mean you have three more cards than your opponents at all. Yeah. And I think that, like, that's probably easier to sort of think about. Then when you go the other way where you spend a card and now you're down three cards versus your opponents, but like you fundamentally they should, you know, if one doesn't work, then the other also doesn't work. Yeah. And I mean, even to throw, to throw even more, just <laughs> yeah. also commander, not just yeah. multiplayer. Can you have, have zero cards in your hand? Really? Can yeah, you? we're not, yeah, exactly. <laughs> we're, we're not unfortunately playing Highlander. We are in fact playing commander. And there's a thing in commander called a commander <laughs> that is effectively an eighth card in your hand slash a ninth card in your hand um, at any given point in time. So just like the, um, the value of having a card in the command zone that you can always cast that presumably you chose to be in the command zone because it is some level of powerful and good means that like this also all gets thrown out the window a bit more because like you yeah as matt said you're never like really truly you never truly have like zero cards in hand unless you're I don't know. Your commander got gilded draked and then the gilded drake got removed. Something wrong. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Something must have been particularly yeah. bad. <laughs> 
And this is also why we see, like, I'm going to go on a bit of a tangent here. We'll get back to this. But this is also why we see so many issues with partners being a thing, is that, like, like the partners also just count as, like, an additional, additional card on top of the regular commander that everybody gets. Yeah. Which is, uh, <laughs> uh <laughs> turns out quite strong. Turns out not bad. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, like, so the whole thing is like, you, you're now, you're not counting cards from zero. You're counting card, like, you're not counting cards from like empty hand to seven or whatever. You're counting cards from like one card in hand to eight, which like actually really does change the math. And then like, you also, after that, have to take into account like the relative value of commanders, like, it's very likely that a Gitrog will win the game on its own, and it's not so likely that like a Thrasios is going to win the game on its own. Yeah, and and so you know, there's there's lots of reasons I think that uh, card exchanges don't clearly don't map neatly from from traditional Magic into Commander, and you know, there's also you'll find card advantage often gets reset with things like Wheel of Fortune and Time Twister and Windfall, where it's like, there's a lot of, all right, everyone has this many cards now in the format. Um, but I think this also, this along with the combat damage thing, sort of permeates through in ways that you wouldn't necessarily expect, because it's not just... It's not just about how you evaluate cards. It's it, it's also about how you evaluate positions and also like roles in a game that is completely thrown off by this, like by card exchanges being fundamentally different. Yeah, I mean, this is also about like where we get into threat assessment a bit, right? Is that like threat assessment sort of exists one v one, and that like you should probably be able to accurately gauge where you are in relation to your opponent in a game where like am i losing am i winning what does that mean for like how like what cards i can cast what i need to be doing in order to win this game etc etc like like knowing like who's the beat down all that kind of stuff um in cdh like or edh in general even um threat assessment starts to take on a lot more of a like pervasive role where you really need to be good at analyzing exactly where you are in position to each of your three com uh, opponents and the table at large right and i think i think the the key thing that is that you need to be able to analyze where your opponents are in relation to each other yeah that, like that's in 1v1 one. threat assessment always involves you it's like me versus you but in in EDH, it's me versus each of my three opponents, but it's also each of my three opponents against each other. And so now you have to think about, like, you have to compare two pieces of information that you're much less, you're much less familiar with than, you know, you, presumably you know less about what where your opponents are and what they're doing than where you are and what you're doing. So now you have to compare two sort of fuzzy pieces of information rather than one fuzzy and one solid piece of information. And this is yeah. sort of why we see issues with people who are getting into EDH for the first time with threat assessment. <laughs> because it's not a simple thing. No, and I didn't really want to bring up politics, but I think now that we're talking about it, it's worth mentioning that that severely changes uh, the landscape in regards to the threat assessment. Uh, and the the value of your opponent drawing a card if you aren't the threat versus when you are the threat. 
Oh yeah, and I mean yeah, we that's... we can go down the whole rabbit hole of like yeah. this also affects like when you do and don't pay for a heuristic study or just like stuff like that as well. Like it's it again as we were saying, it sort of permeates and like goes through the entire <laughs> format of like all these base things of why it's different from sixty card and how those affect like every decision that you have to make during a game. Yeah, I think really like uh, the kind of the key difference is that. In 1v1 formats, there's kind of a positive feedback loop where, like, when you get ahead, you know, that means that you can be a little bit more relaxed about dealing with your opponent's threats. Like, let's say you have, I don't know, you have some sort of engine that's generating value and you don't have a great, your opponent plays a creature and you have force of will. And you're like, "Eh, well, you know, I can, you know, I have a decent amount of removal in my deck. I'll just let this creature land. You know, it might put six damage on me over the next few turns. But, like, I don't want to spend this Force of Will, and I don't really need to because I'm not under a huge amount of threat. Um, And so the person who's ahead can spend their resources more effectively because they're less likely to be, for their hand to be forced. And so that tends to get you farther and farther ahead. Um, You know, if you've ever played, you know, your opponent sticks, like, I don't know, Teferi, Hero of Dominaria. I was about to say, actually. <laughs> that and then you're just like, card. well, this is not going to be fun. Um, CDH has plenty multi- of those cards. <laughs> yeah. Like, in, in multiplayer, though, there's kind of a negative feedback loop where unless you can actually grow at a rate that outpaces the combined growth of your three opponents, like... It, you're generally not growing faster than all three of your opponents put together, which means that if you're ahead, eventually you'll be pulled back into line by people just pointing more stuff at you. Yeah. Or not always, but that's like a thing that certainly can happen. So just getting slightly at you, it's much harder to get slightly ahead and then hold on to that. Yeah. And just ride being slightly ahead to victory. Which is, like, coincidentally also why control doesn't really function <laughs> in CDH, because, like, it's hard to... Like, it's hard to put yourself in an advantageous position and then, like, slowly accumulate more and more advantage until you just win the game. Because, like, you're just naturally being pulled down. Like, there's a constant negative force that you have to overcome to win the game. And, like, control doesn't really do that. In any, like, at most, you're going to be, like, meeting that negative force by, like, okay, I have to try to stay up in cards, but, like, you're only staying up in cards to keep up with the rest of the table, just drawing cards naturally. I feel like the way that I think about it is, like, the natural equilibrium in 1v1 is that somebody is going to win the game. Whereas, like, the natural equilibrium in multiplayer is like nobody is winning the game and that's why you see like super long edh games and cdh games because like if if the game just continues at a constant pace with like nobody really doing anything outlandish or whatever you just nobody wins the game until like people deck whereas in 1v1 it's very natural that like yeah somebody has a creature out okay they're now winning and they're just going to by default win the game if nothing happens yeah anyway yeah yeah so i guess that we can we can move on (laughs) control doesn't work in in cdh in the same way but there's definitely other types of you know archetypes and concepts that aren't the same so the next one we have here is tempo 
Yeah. I mean, so tempo is sort of a weird one, right? Because tempo, first of all, tempo as a concept is sort of hard to get <laughs> anyway for like 60 card. Like it takes a bit for somebody getting to the game to understand what tempo is and like how it functions. Um, and it requires like a bit of skill to navigate the, um, the archetype and like play decks within that archetype. Um, and that's because it's sort of abstract, but the general idea of a tempo deck, if you are not familiar, is um, generally in 60 card formats, you are in some way pressuring your opponent typically through a cheap threat with combat damage. Um, these are cards like typically you'll see like a one card threat like Delver of Secrets, Tarmogoyf, Death Shadow, that kind of stuff where it's it deals damage at an above rate mana cost as long as it stays alive. And then the rest of the deck is sort of interacting with your opponent and making sure they don't get too far ahead and sort of dealing with their threats. And typically it's just you're using a small number of threats to apply pressure and then dealing with the answers that your opponents might have, right? Um, and CDH doesn't really work because... <laughs> yeah, it's well, kind of... That kind of strategy does very much depend on the effectiveness of your interaction. And if you're unable to pack your deck with one cmc symmetrical interaction like you can <laughs> yeah. in uh, legacy then yeah you you kind of fall short but also it's like a combination of the topics that we talked about before where like first of all it's hard to pressure your opponents with combat damage right like pressuring your opponents in general to try to get them dead just like doesn't really work in cdh aside from like exactly najila where like najila is like the one card period that you can get consistent access to that like might actually be able to dead the table just by attacking every turn and it's like at a reasonable rate um but aside from that combat damage doesn't really get you there and like it's it's hard to have a cheap threat that will just kill the table like maybe the only other card is sarah ascendant and like when have you ever died to a sarah ascendant it's simply just you get people low and then it gets removed or stolen or something yeah. right I don't think um, ever. <laughs> yeah, I think I've died. I think I've died to a Sarah Ascendant like once or twice. But yeah, usually yeah. it like, you know, that card is theoretically insane in this format. And I think that's an example. That card can very easily be one mana deal 20 damage. And that's like not a staple. Yeah. Right. Like it goes in some decks. Yeah. But like <laughs> it doesn't go in more decks than it goes in despite, you know one mana deal 20 damage <laughs> yeah it's, it's it's best feature is that it's a one mana flyer with tinna yeah exactly <laughs> um i mean like it's also the okay i'm gonna get into this quickly not very long but it's also the fact that like you can't play like eight sarah ascendants you can only play one sarah ascendant and it's not particularly easy to find um i mean you can find it but you'd rather spend not that you want to <laughs> <other stuff>. yeah <laughs> um but so it's like a combination of like tempo sort of the the two like the two pillars of a tempo deck are its ability to quickly get its opponent dead in a relatively fast mana manner maybe not as fast as like pure aggro or burn but like you can consistently like put pressure on your opponent and make them start having to make difficult choices early and then interacting with them and both of those pillars of the archetype just get disrupted by edh stuff right because your combat damage doesn't really get there and also now your card exchanges are bad and now you can't like playing 1v1 interaction isn't as good to protect your stuff and stop what your opponents are doing. And it's like it's hard to lock down your opponents with purely interaction. Like you have to have proactive disruption in order to stop all of your opponents from doing stuff in CDH. 
And then you also have to simultaneously not be the threat because then it's three versus one. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> so it's just so like tempo as an archetype and traditional tempo doesn't really work, but it does work in another sense, which is that you instead of pressuring life totals with damage, you pressure people to die through combos, <laughs> typically efficient combos. And then you interact with basically the very key stuff that your opponents are doing. Because the one thing that does make it easier to interact with your opponents, aside from all the card quality stuff, um, is something that we talked about before, which is the ratio of air to non-air in opponent stacks in CDH tends to be a lot higher than in 60-card formats, where it's really, really difficult to go 1v1 or 1-to-1 with, like, Jund or a control deck in other formats because all of their cards are live and they're playing very few cards that don't do anything and are do nothings. Whereas in CDH you can a lot of the time counter a single card. And now that opponent's not doing anything for a while. Yeah. Like there, there's no, there's no equivalent in modern or, I mean, there are equivalents with some decks, but you know, someone casts Thassa's Oracle and then they cast consult and you counter the consult and then, Basically, in terms of them winning, they're like actually back to basically back to square one. Like you have to start over. You either have to get those pieces back somehow or find a different, you know, find your backup combo or whatever. Whereas like if you're playing against Jund and, you know, they, they stick the Tarmogoyf and then you're like putting out blockers and they're getting bolted and decayed and whatever. And you're like getting hand attacked and then you finally manage to you know, you remove the Tarmogoyf, but you're at, like, six. You know, when they slam the second Tarmogoyf, or one of the other threats that represent, like, let's say, let's say even if they're just playing, you know, ten of their sixty cards that effectively put damage on and pressure life totals, when they draw into another one of them, you're now back to being, uh, you're now back to still, you know, let's say, I'll say 15 just because it makes the math nicer. <laughs> sure. If you don't, you know, they're, they're at five. You've dealt 15 damage with your Tarmogoyf. Like, when you play the second Tarmogoyf, you're already 75% of the way to killing them. Again. Yeah. Whereas, you know, when, like, when you, when your first combo gets stopped, it's just as hard to assemble the second combo as it was to assemble the first combo. Whereas, yeah, when, when you're, damage source gets interrupted it's you're it's much easier to kill your opponent from where you where they start when you find the second damage source yeah yeah it's hard it's hard to make that kind of proactive progress um and you can't just win strictly through value which is i think the only really proactive thing you can do in the, in the format <laughs> as much as i would like that <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> Matt, well known for playing four color value piles. <laughs> God, if I, I can't imagine if 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 it was possible to win through pure value in games of CDH, I'm sure Matt's win rate in our local group would be through Dude. the roof. <laughs> <laughs> Just a natural Thassa's Oracle with enough blue devotion. It's it's fine. Combos with Ristic Steady having a blue and it's going to cost. Uh, <laughs> Um, but you can be proactive and um, attack your opponents in other angles, like Reed mentioned, such as denying mana, um, which uh, 
is much weaker than other formats like legacy and modern um because our in a general sense like uh, mana production is not just uh, efficient mana production isn't just centralized on lands but it's also um in artifacts and just other ramp like uh dorks mm-hmm. like it's just because of what we went over earlier with the like you need to produce more mana in a shorter time frame in cdh just to cast your higher cmc cards it's you're incentivized to spread out your uh your mana production between card types just in order to get more of it at a faster pace and that really messes with strategies like what you would view as classic tempo strategies where they're looking to do things like wasteland your lands or disrupt your mana with like stifling your fetches ghost quartering you doing that kind of stuff and running very mana light and disrupting your mana which is also a pillar of tempo but it's not really as easy because it's hard to first of all again card like card um card economy completely different it's strip mine is nowhere near as good (laughs) you can't just deny somebody's entire mana base with a strip mine in this format but also it's really difficult to take people off of mana completely even if you were to um say armageddon your opponents and do mana denial that way it's still likely that they're going to be able to cast spells yeah and and another thing that i think um at least merits a mention is that back to you know because of the lack of sort of pressure in terms of life totals it's much more difficult to put people in a position where they actually can't develop their mana like if you've ever played you know some of the decks in modern that have like ramp cards in them it's often quite awkward it's like turn three and your opponent has just curved like one drop two drop and like okay you're facing down five damage on the board and then like okay are they gonna be burning me or whatever like what's going on here and then you're looking you know you're looking at like or say what they've curved one drop two drop three drop and then you're like okay well i either have this like sweeper or i can play my uh you know whatever whatever it is like um my something like wilderness reclamation or um i'm migration path was that the like the cycling uh, yes i think yeah like the four mana sorcery that searches for two lands like if that's in your hand oftentimes on turn four if you if you're tapping out to cast that you're just like you can look at the board and go if i tap out to cast this i'm dead and that kind of pressure doesn't exist in the same way in in cedh especially because like there's other people who have a vested interest in stopping you from winning so you know like one person tapping out doesn't present you with this massive opportunity to to win because you have other opponents who can stop you so it's it's harder to stop people from playing ramp cards or putting them in a position where they feel like they can't and it's also an issue because like cumulative win cons don't really exist so it's like it's it's unlikely that somebody's going to stick a thing in that turn cycle or like it's it's unlikely that there's going to be like a bunch of stuff that you need to deal with at once 
um, in play. As we were saying before, it t- like stuff tends to get dealt with one at a time. So it's like it's it's just safer to tap out for mana in the earlier turns rather than having to hold stuff up for like oh like they're starting to get their engine going we need to stop this now versus like yeah we can wait until they just try to make the one attempt so it's safer earlier because they're not actually exerting pressure until they actually attempt to go for the win yeah like you're just not going to get your advantage through interaction like it's you're just um you're just so much more incentivized to get your advantage through proactive plays and you know asymmetrical plays and it yeah, it's it's hard to be and especially hard to play symmetrical plays when like the the kind of pill, the, the ramp the fundamental um ramp in this format or i i'm not really saying this right uh ignore that point <laughs> like what you're saying no, is I, in order I, I don't really do it yeah in order to actually attack everybody's mana you have to play like joker pops <laughs> <laughs> yeah which is really not an option and yeah. uh i don't think you're gonna make it out of that one uh in a non-symmetrical way <laughs> hey man rory thar was a deck for like a <laughs> second <laughs> that, that one time was yeah. it <laughs> I, I, might, I might have missed that one <laughs> um, god i just that just makes me want to play jokel hops now <laughs> i don't know there's there's got to be a deck at some point that can play jokel hops right that just, just makes me want to right. play jokel <laughs> i can't i cannot relate it, at least this episode's quotable oh yeah exactly right, right. <laughs> cast it once and then take it out of your deck but i think that like that whole thing about like you're not being pressured in early turn so like it's it's um it's more likely that you just like ramp out of stuff, which makes mana dial weaker, which makes tempo weaker. Sort of dovetails nicely into talking about um, sort of aggressive decks, aggro decks, um, sort of what you would typically consider to be "quote unquote" the beatdown in sixty card formats, right? And sort of how they're weaker slash don't exist slash exist in a different form in CDH rather than uh, in one v one. Because you certainly can't do the damage required in your early turns. You can't really establish threats. I mean, believe me, I've tried. I've played Ishai Timna. It's a thing that I've attempted to do. <laughs> um, but it's you not know what? You cast Ishai. <laughs> I saw it's, you cast it. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I definitely, I've killed people with that deck with Timna, with the Ishai beats. But I've, like, the deck's really more of a, like, it, it's more of a tempo deck. It's just hard because... Like, for aggressive decks, if you want to kill somebody with combat damage in EDH, in CDH even, and you want to be aggressive while doing it, it's hard to dedicate all your slots because it's just fundamentally slower than, like, combo is also, I think, like, one of the underpinnings where typically combo will just kill faster than aggro. There's not much of a reason to play aggro. Because you also can't play like all the redundant effects required to play like a resilient aggro deck, where you're sort of set like combo decks already play like very specific cards and don't play a lot of redundancy. And once you put like aggro on the same playing field, it's just like it doesn't function as well. I feel like right. 
Well, so I guess it, it kind of depends on what you define as aggro. Like, obviously, in 60-card formats, aggro is typically um, reserved for, like, decks that are dealing damage. Um, but you could also fundamentally look at it as, like, an aggro deck is one that is trying to go under its opponents. So then, like, things like Turbo Nas would, would sort of fill that role uh in cedh um and there are like there are certainly some similarities between the way uh turbo Nas plays and the way something like burn plays um you know you're you're focused on your own game plan you're trying to you know you you sacrifice a lot of pieces that are better in a long game and you're trying to just kill your opponents before they manage to establish themselves um but then there are, are also some fundamental differences. Um, like, as we mentioned earlier, uh, because the win cons aren't sort of cumulative in the way that da damages, if you try to win and you almost win and then don't win, um, you're not almost winning still. <laughs> yeah, you're... Right, like... <laughs> like, if, if, you, if you if you almost win you're not winning is a great <laughs> quote <laughs> yeah if you're like well but in modern yeah, if you yeah. almost win you're often still yes. almost winning right yeah. like if you're burn and you get them down to three they they better be feeling pretty nervous right it's like all right i have to top deck an answer for every single bolt that this person could draw or i'm just gonna die but, like, you almost win, right? You go, like, Dockside, uh, you know, Dockside, Ritual, Ad Nauseum. Oh, my Ad Nauseum got countered. Well. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, you're, you're not exactly in a great spot. It's not like just any, any old top deck will, will put you back in it. Um, and so, like, the decks that are trying to go under... Um, they don't transition you can't sort of mostly go under and then for the last little bit go through in the same way that yeah. you can in modern yeah which is sort of why it's hard to make direct comparisons because <laughs> aggro has it's like an aggro like all of our aggro decks are aggro decks that have a really difficult time closing out the game <laughs> when interacted with <laughs> yeah for reasons like you just you just can't quite get there i mean obviously Terminoz decks work and they kill people. I'm not saying that like they're not good decks and valid decks. It's just like compared to yeah, cumulative things, they're they just it's it's like a really, really fragile aggro deck. It's also hard to get this terminology across to 60 card players because like <laughs> the archetype that we call aggro already exists in 1v1 formats as aggro combo or just combo. Yeah, like fast combo. <laughs> yeah, fast like, combo. <laughs> And You're most formats, there's not even necessarily the need for a distinction between yeah, different no. speeds of combo decks. Yeah. <laughs> We're literally like all no other no other uh, archetypes exist in our format, so we just get down to subdividing your combo decks to make them seem yeah, <laughs> more exactly. different. <laughs> I mean, I guess I think there are decks that like I wouldn't classify as fundamentally combo decks. Like I think yeah. that pr probably the best example I would have had of this was. Um, is like curious control like that yeah. deck winning the game at like actually ending the game 
it's more than just sort of a formality or cosmetic because like cdh is very swingy and you know holding the table down for 10 turns while you slowly finish them off with like whatever the most efficient win condition is like you know holding the table down while you finish them off with vile smasher is like very risky right yeah. like a straight like, a run of good draws from your opponents and like oh like oh, one of them bordering on through. impossible yeah <laughs> yeah so like you do need to win the game but it's a deck that looks to win the game after it's established somewhat of a firm grip on yeah on like what everyone's doing i'd also say the same about like most stack stacks um where yeah. you're like you're looking to your primary goal is just stop your opponents from doing stuff and then like it's really just now down to a race between your opponents and their like your opponents with their optimal decks that are optimized to combo but being disrupted in a variety of ways versus your deck which is not optimized to combo but is not being disrupted <laughs> yeah like despite despite the fact that blood pod often ends the game by using blood pod to find kiki jiki and combo the deck plays nothing like kiki pod used to play yeah. in modern like it's you know, well because if, and, if, and i mean even even pod blurs the line of like what was a combo deck and what was yeah. what was like a, some sort of value or mid-range let deck me, but, let me assure you that if you attempted to play a pod value deck in edh you would never resolve a pod ever <laughs> it's just like no you're gonna, it's, you're gonna that's attempt the, to use it for value, and it's going to be removed within the turn cycle. <laughs> it's kind of like unfortunate uh, when you're playing Yasan. It's almost exactly the same, like yeah. you're, <laughs> or Vanifar. Yeah. Or Vanifar, yeah. Yes. I mean, well, sure. <laughs> like, yeah. Imagine trying to convince your opponents that you can't win with Vanifar when they let you untap with it. Yep. <laughs> no, I swear, guys. Yeah, right. <laughs> kill it with fire that's sort of that's that discussion about control decks and um stack stacks sort of does pivot into what is basically our last topic here which is on the topic of stabilization um which is a term that you hear a lot um in referring to uh interactive decks like control decks in 1v1 formats where you're sort of or the deck that isn't the beatdown more accurately in any given game um where your goal is sort of to um, stop the bleeding, get into a place where you're not immediately likely to die, and then attempt to take over the game again, right? Um, which, like, you basically put a stop to your opponent immediately threatening your life, um, get some cards ready to go, establish uh, some hands so that you can, like, remove any future threats, and then get into a place where you can now safely go for a win. And stabilizing in CDH looks a lot different from that, right? Because, as Morgan was talking about earlier, like, using Curious Control as an example, because it's probably the closest that we really have to, like, a functional control deck in the format, and even then, like, now it's not really, it's, like, less of a control deck and more no, just... No, it's not. It's, like, it's a, it's a combo deck with, like, power classes in it now, unfortunately enough. Um, but, and, like, before, at the time, it's it was really, like, you were never really truly stabilized, right? You never were really holding the table down and like, okay, I have two extra counter spells in my hand. My opponents don't have any threats in play or in their hand. Like I can ride this and just like take natural draws until I win the game and like potentially deal with anything they come down with. It's like, no, those two counter spells are like 
one person draws a rhystic study, you sort of have to get rid of that. One person draws an adnaz, you sort of have to deal with that. The last person, like, casts the Gitrog monster out of their command zone, and now you lose the game. Like, yeah. it's really, really difficult to truly stabilize in CDH, yeah. just because you're, again, you're drawing against three opponents, which is, like, it's incredibly difficult to outdraw three opponents. Like, no matter how far ahead you are. Yeah, like, in, in 1v1 formats, when you're playing control, you'll often hit a point where you're like, okay, as long as, like, one of my next four and three of my next ten cards are, like, you know, somehow gas, maybe that's some sort of threat or interaction or more card advantage or whatever, like, I'm fine here, you know, there's nothing that they can do. I can answer whatever they play, and, you know, I have extra cards or whatever to, to tide me through, you know, drawing three lands in a row. But, like, you'll never hit that in CEDH where you're like, oh, yeah, you know, unless unless I draw nothing, unless I draw stone nothing, there's no way my opponents can win this game. Like, that, you never hit that situation in, in CEDH. Which is... So, no matter yeah, how, sort of, no matter how, like... Sort of why combos are also required, right? <laughs> it's like, yeah. aggro, it's, it's, it's really funny how, for almost completely different reasons aggro decks and control decks are required to play combos in CDH, where, like, aggro decks can't really kill you with combat damage, so they need to find a way to do it all at once, and, like, combo is the most efficient way to do that, and, like, control decks can't really keep the game under lock for long enough to win just, like, by sticking it to fairy, um, what, like, some planeswalker or, like, a large boy to deal combat damage. So they're like, oh, we have to close this out faster. All right, we'll also go to combo. So, like, from two completely opposite sides of the spectrum and for two almost completely different reasons, <laughs> you have these, like, different archetypes centralizing on needing to play combos. And I think, I mean, just like ramp, it's kind of one of those fundamental features that um, you need to consider in your deck building. Like, um, as much as you would like to fit into these types of categories, like you do need to consider that um, you're moving at the pace of the other players um, because uh, you know you can't proactively remove uh, use interaction to get back into the game. You have to you know, be moving at the same pace, but also you need to be able to win just as fast. Yeah, hundred percent. Um, I think that might be it for a topic at hand, unless anybody has anything else to add. I, yeah, actually, I'm, I want to add one thing on stabilization, just a small tidbit. Um, we talked about like Remora and Mystic being these kind, these super swingy kind of anti-stabilization cards, um, but another category is wheels and um, these like resets and specifically with wheels it's it's bad because um your opponents um, are incentivized to collude on getting a wheel to resolve uh which is much different than the case of a risk study where it is generally speaking one versus three on that card those types of cards yeah definitely yeah i think it's actually something that i was talking about early today with can i say this callahan yes Gameplay video should be out. You know, I, was, I was more thinking about like, has, is this video going out before we release this episode? Probably, almost, <laughs> almost certainly, certainly not. <laughs> um, yeah, I was actually talking about Callahan. We're talking with Callahan earlier today about um, a like something that isn't necessarily super obvious as a difference between like getting into CDH, even just between um, 
regular EDH and CDH, but especially between 60 card formats and CDH, is that wheels are a lot more prevalent in CDH, and there are a lot of play patterns centralized around wheel effects that like just don't really exist in any other format and like you that you really need to get used to. And it, it's sort of just even more complicated by the fact that it's obviously like a multiplayer format, so it just adds more layers on top of that. And it's like it's something that if you're just at first getting into the format, it might not seem like something that's like a major part of the format or like something that you don't need necessarily need to learn. It's like a more niche thing, but it's actually like I feel like it's really important to figure out how you play against wheels, how you play with wheels in your deck when you use them, because it's like it becomes very easy to misplay even casting a wheel if you don't understand precisely why wheels are good, why you play wheels, and when you need to play them in order to get the maximum value out of them, right? Yeah, one thing and you can't do with a wheel is, um, you know, be have like enough of an advantage on board that you can safely cast it, uh, and and to like saying like assuming there's no disruption, like like there's really nothing that you can commit to the board that would be stronger than your, your all your opponents drawing seven cards, um, so you're you kind of are forced into comboing your wheels if, into something like a Notion Thief or a Hull Breacher or, um, you know, for instance, like an Underworld uh, Breach. Um, but there's also, there's also like, one of the key... Um, I mean, you know, Reed sort of touched on this a little bit with, uh, with miss, you know, it's easy to misplay wheels. That is one other thing that you know, messes with your evaluation of positions as well, is that really in 1v1 formats, there's no such thing as your opponent making a misplay that's bad for you. Yep. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's actually, yeah. Oh my goodness. That, that just doesn't happen um, because fundamentally, like, any disadvantage to them is an advantage to you. But when you're playing, when you're playing with four other people, you can certainly have, you know, like, one person plays out five, you know, they're going to untap on turn two with, like, five mana because they had, like, crypt and whatever. And then the person, like, the person who went first and played land dork turn one, like, plays land wheel turn two. And you're like, wait, but <laughs> but now, like, this other person is super far ahead of both of us. <laughs> and, you know, how do we, how do we, like, manage that? Yeah, incredibly interesting, and I mean, <laughs> we could get into this more, but I feel like it's going a bit beyond the scope of this episode and getting more into a potential future episode on getting into the format. Have we done that episode already? <laughs> yes and no. Okay, well, <laughs> anyway. We don't have one single source of getting into this format. Yeah. yeah. We're, we'll do a series at some point. I believe in us. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's optimistic. <laughs> but anyway... I think it is time for us to get into everybody's favorite segment. Good check. <laughs> Good check. Good check. And contrary to Morgan's <laughs> incredibly monotone delivery on that, Morgan actually has our gut check for today. So. <laughs> I sure do. <laughs> nice. Uh, this one, it might be a little open to interpretation, but... Uh, Aren't they all? You know, we're just... Yeah. So, 
People who have been around in the CDH community for long enough might remember the famous mid-range slot in Bloodborne. <laughs> oh, joy. Uh, so the question is, what's your favorite mid-range value or disruption piece that you try to slot in decks when you're trying to make them play for the long game? Mm. That's Besides question. the obvious answers, like... Uh, like the, the the popular answers well like i'm saying beside like ones that you don't put in every deck like like ristic study isn't yeah, okay. really like mm. despite the fact that it is a mid-range value piece it's not one that you you know you slot in when you're making your deck take the game long it's just like a staple so all right i think i got mine it's not it's not super good <sighs> right now but i think i have it this is really tough like it could definitely be a, like I, you know I think Seedborn Muse is a valid answer to this question. Yeah. Oh, come I, I on. actually have. No, a, it's got to be spicier have, than Seedborn Muse. Let's okay. I, well, let's, sure. Let's I've, set that bar. It has to be spicier than Seedborn Muse. I have a, I have a, Seed, I have a Seedborn adjacent answer, so maybe I just leave it that. <laughs> I was gonna say Natural Order. <laughs> in order to get a Seedborn Muse. <laughs> in order to get your Seedborn Muse. <laughs> I dig it. I dig it. <laughs> yeah. Wait, but doesn't it also get you Nyx Bloom Angel? It also it does get also me Nyx Bloom Woodland Bellower. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> now we're talking. Or, yeah. I got you, Dave. Um, don't ever say that I don't have you. <laughs> um, all right, Reed, how about all right, you? I think I have to say compost. It's not particularly great right now, but compost is just such a sick card. Honestly, I feel like it I feel like it's good against Breach, and people sort of stopped playing it, and then Breach became like a big thing. I'm like That's fair. It's definitely one that I think. I mean, it's could it's certainly still in my curious control build that I actually am maintaining for the record. <laughs> it's it's mm. not non-maintained, but it yeah. I, I mean, like I feel like it's it's fine right now. I mean, potentially if you're playing in like a very farm-heavy meta where like yeah. there's some amount of interaction, you just like slam a compost turn two, and then people like try to do rituals and stuff, and you're just like gimme cards, gimme, gimme, gimme. I feel like people also I'm not gonna like actually get into a whole discussion on this, but I also feel like people don't respect compost as much as they respect Ristic Study. <laughs> well the thing is, is that you can't you can't play through compost other than just not ever casting. Sure, but like you can do things right, versus like, like but people people like you can you can definitely do things like sequence like I need to cast X spells over three turns, and you can always like you can definitely like cast the black spells during the last turn rather than like the first two turns to play around it a bit. And I feel like people just don't do sure, that. Sure, but but fundamentally, if you're casting the same yeah, it's, three spells, it's going to draw. They're going to draw three cards yeah. with with Ristic Study. If you space it out over two turns, you can pay and make them not draw. Um, but anyways, I think my answer is Linvala, Keeper of Silence. Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> yeah, classic. That just a lot of decks have a really hard time answering her. She doesn't die to abrupt decay. That. In fact, is my least favorite thing that she does is not die to abrupt decay. <laughs> <laughs> and and then also like you can certainly get to the point where it's not quite worth it. You know, while everyone wants her gone, it's not quite worth it for anyone any one person to actually invest in removing her. I mean, Gilda Drake is definitely a problem, but but like often a problem, <laughs> often a, often a problem. But it's certainly like uh, man. When when Linvala shuts down multiple opponents, it's it's always like tricky. It's tricky for those opponents to decide. Well, if I commit the resource, you know, the card and the mana to deal with this Linvala, whatever shape that takes, then like 
that means three of us get to use our creatures again. You know, like, I get to activate Thrasios, but they also get to activate Thrasios. This is actually yeah. is that, but that's that's the big problem with Gilded Drake, <laughs> yeah. right? Is that you, yeah. is that you actually yeah. it's your best way of dealing with Lumbala, like by far. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There was also the issue with um, it was actually it was it was a playstyle that I didn't particularly enjoy, but I thought it was very interesting about um, pre Oracle Flash Hulk meta is that like Lumbala was actually a very good card to play because. Once you resolve to Linvala, and if there were like multiple flashlight players at the table, none of them actually really wanted to remove it. Because like typically by the time somebody found an answer, everybody would have found their flashes and hulks. And then as soon as you remove it, like it's just, okay, well, <laughs> somebody else can now flash. That's not great. <laughs> I don't want somebody else to flash over my flash. Because <laughs> I think. Man, I could go on for days about the pre-Oracle Flash Hulk meta, because I think it was like, it was interesting, it was toxic, but it was interesting. <laughs> Some of the playstyles that emerged out of it were like, <laughs> the only real time when Flash won early was when, or like, yeah, like the only time when like Flashes won um, earlier on in the game were like when not everybody had found their Flash yet. Because once everybody had found their flash, now it gets into like a sandbag cheese off. No, then it's yeah. yeah. <laughs> I have to get to the point where I can beat yeah. everyone's interaction and their yeah. flashes. Which is like what um, Linvala actually sort of excelled in. Is, is like Linvala bridged the gap from like it. It actually, ironically enough, let everybody. It like lets all the flash players find their flash, <laughs> and then once it gets to that point, it then gets removed, and then it gets into a cheese off. <laughs> yeah, I guess that that was the, when we were talking about how you know damage the lack of combat damage sort of throws off a lot of evaluations. We forgot to mention that that makes Gilded Drake actually the dumbest yep. card. <laughs> actually hilarious. This <laughs> <laughs> is not okay at all. <laughs> anyway. Um, wait, cut this. Are we doing listener questions? There, like, aren't really any new ones. Great, awesome. I'll just end the episode then. Anyway, that about wraps it up for this episode. Uh, if you guys would like to reach out to us with any questions, comments, or concerns, you can contact us on Twitter at Into the North Pod via our email at Into the North Podcast at gmail.com or on our Discord server, the invite link for which can be found in the description for this episode. An extra special thanks to all of our patrons who help cover the expenses for our show and allow us to work toward improving the quality of the podcast. If you too would like to become a patron, we are at patreon.com slash into the north podcast. Another way you can support us is via our TCG player affiliate link. Anytime you want to purchase something from TCG player, if you use our affiliate link, which is in the podcast and YouTube description, a portion of your purchase goes towards supporting the podcast. Thank you as always to the band Vox Cadre for our lovely podcast music, to Nate Slover for our equally lovely podcast logo, and to our long-suffering podcast editor a roadkill. Uh, next episode will be out in two weeks. Until then, see ya. Bye. Have a good one.